0: As we come now before God's Word, if you'd like to read with me, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, in chapter 15. 2 Samuel 15, the Pew Bible is slightly different than my translation, but it's essentially the same. We know that we're continuing to follow the life of Absalom here, so now we've come to to this season. Before we read... Would you please pray with me? Lord, as we come now before your word, would you help us to be uh, humbled by this, to not be presumptuous, and not to take these things lightly, but to really hear and listen and to be changed. Lord, we know your word is powerful because you are powerful So now, would you guide us by your Spirit? Help us to see that which is true of you and true of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 15. I want to read here these first uh, 12 verses, so we'll start in, in verse 1. After this... Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate, and when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, "'From what city are you?' And when he said, "'Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel,' Absalom would say to him, "'See, your claims are good.'" And write, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. And then Absalom would say, oh, that I were a judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. And the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. When Absalom, with Absalom, went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. This is God's word. Now, the summary... Of what has happened here in this season of their lives is in the second half of this last verse that we've read and at the end of verse Of 12 and the conspiracy grew strong and the people with absalom kept Increasing so this morning we're going to look at this Conspiracy in israel And when we talk about conspiracy just to be clear up front we are not talking about conspiracy conspiracy theories here this is not whether or not the moon landing was faked or area 51 stuff those are those are ideas conspiracy here is an action it's a mutiny this is a plot to take over the kingdom as king you'll remember how we got to this point absalom who's the son of david who's the current king over israel uh, had murdered his oldest brother, Amnon. And as a result, Absalom fled into another country, and now he's been brought back into Jerusalem, which is the capital of Israel, and it is not enough for Absalom to be back. He wants to take it back. Absalom thinks that he should be the one to run this show, and so he begins this conspiracy. Now, As we look at this text, we're going to ask three questions. If you like structure, here you go I'll throw you a bone every once in a while. Three questions, which are how did this happen? Where did it lead? And what's the Christian response? How did it happen? Where does it lead? And what's the Christian response? So let's look at this first one. How did this conspiracy happen? Absalom mainly builds this conspiracy based on pomp and partisanship. Boy, aren't those fancy words. I chose the word pomp to describe this here. I almost called it power, but then I realized as I read through this over and over that it's not just a power play here. It is more than that. Pomp. Is a display of power Putting the power out for everyone to see Whether or not the power is real or not doesn't matter It's just the display of it So this is also called sometimes peacocking You get the idea Put up the feathers so everybody knows who you are I mean, we see it right from the beginning. He gets himself a chariot, which I find the way that that's worded to be funny. He gets himself a chariot, and he's got 50 men who trot out in front of him. He's got a parade now wherever he goes. Now, before Israel, years ago, before Israel even had a king in the first place, when they were still ruled just by judges, they were asking for a king— And Samuel prophesied during that time that if they had a king, the king would do these very things that Absalom has done. That the king would take chariots and take your sons and he would continue to take and take, take your food, take your wives, take your everything. He would begin to take all that is yours. Absalom is now taking on that role. He wants to look the part of a king, and so he displays it with all this pomp. And he's going to use that display to force partisanship upon the people. Now, if that sounds like a political word, it's because it is. This is a very political moment here for Israel The gate of Jerusalem, where Absalom, you'll notice that's where he does most of this The gate of Jerusalem is basically like their city town hall This is the place that they would gather to make all their major government decisions And and judges would decide legal matters And so it says here that that Absalom, verse 2, would rise early And stand beside the way of the gate and he's doing that to intercept any people who are coming to the king with a dispute. And so Absalom comes, or all these people are coming into the king to have their issue dealt with, and, and his first question is, what city are you from? In other words, are you, are you in a good district? Are you in the right area for me? And then once they answer, he says, What's your claim? And they tell him, and and whatever they say, Absalom says, Ah, your claim is good and right. You know, if only the king had appointed a judge to hear your good case. And you know, if I were in charge, you could come to me and you would get justice. That sounds great. But you see what he's doing here. He's purposefully trying to undercut King David. He's trying to force a wedge between the king and the people. He's basically drawing a partisan line in the sand and forcing people to make a choice. Now, we know not all of what Absalom says about King David is true. If you were here a few weeks ago in chapter 14, you remember we heard uh, from the wise woman, the widow of Tekoa, who came and brought her case before King David. So he was hearing cases, but Absalom here is not really concerned about truth and peace and justice here. Absalom is more concerned with getting people to join his side, to build his team, and so he flatters them no matter what their case is, he goes, yeah, that's right. That's good. You know, not every one of those cases had to be right and good, but he says they are. And, and when they come to him and bow, he, you know, he extends his hand and draws them in and gives them a big hug and a kiss. Boy, this guy knows how to work the crowd and kiss all the babies and get right up uh, and personal with the people. This is politics at its very best. Best, worst? Uh, I'll let you decide, I suppose. But for four years, uh, uh, verse 7 says, four years Absalom uh, did this. Early morning, he got up and would stand by the way of the gate regularly. Now, we don't know why King David did nothing about this. Perhaps he didn't quite know all of what was happening Or More likely I think that uh, he was aware of what was happening with Absalom, but he just underestimated the gravity of it At any rate the king has done nothing and in the in the four-year span at the end of this four years Absalom decides It's finally time for him to make his move for the throne And so he goes to the city of Hebron and he takes with him uh, 200 Men from Jerusalem, and, and, and the author here says um, these people were innocent. They, they knew nothing about the conspiracy, so they just have kind of, they've been invited. They've come along for the ride. It's likely that Absalom has now invited key leaders in Jerusalem to draw them out of the city so that they won't be able to support David when the day comes that he wants to arise to the throne. But at any rate, many people, aside from these 200, joined Absalom willingly. We're told he he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. They liked to go with him. They wanted to go with him. In fact, this even included a man who's named Ahithophel, which is one of David's closest advisors. He also happens to be the grandfather of Bathsheba, So perhaps he had some reason to want to turn on David. Um, But now this conspiracy is kicking into full effect, and the people who are with Absalom kept increasing. Now, question two. That's how it happened, how it came to be. Question two Where does this lead? Where does it lead? When this conspiracy is kicked into full effect, uh, Absalom has sent messengers throughout all of Israel, and they all go with the same message. They, they say, when you hear the trumpet, you're, you're to proclaim, Absalom is king at Hebron. And this tactic was so effective that David, was for, David the current king, was forced to flee from Jerusalem. That's in the next section. We'll talk about that next week and what happens there. But there are deeper effects than even this. There is a cultural shift happening here. Because a conspiratorial mindset settles into the mind of society and has some detrimental effects in fact, we see conspiracies like this happen throughout the life of the history of the kingships in Israel and never do they end well. Let's look at one of them in 2 Kings. You don't have to turn there. It's just a summary of the history here. Second Kings in chapter 15. The king here currently is uh, Zechariah. But in, in verse 8 it begins like this. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel in Samaria for six months. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as his, as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. And so Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him. He struck him down at Iblaim and put him to death and reigned in his place. So there's a current king. This other guy comes in with a conspiracy and kills him and takes the throne. So now Shalom, the new king, is king for one month. Do you know why? Because someone else conspired against him. <laughs> Verse 14, then Menahem, the son of Gadi, came up from Tisra and came to Samaria, and he struck down Shalom, the son of Jabesh in Samaria, and put him to death and reigned in his place. Do you see what this does? The saying, if you fight fire with fire, then the whole world goes up in smoke, is certainly true here. This is turning into a real-life Game of Thrones. We're teaching one another to live by the sword in a culture in which hostile takeover is acceptable and even normal. This is not turn the other cheek. This is hit harder and cut deeper so that you can be the new head honcho in charge. And this sort of mindset not only leads us to repeat the cycle of conspiracies, but it also leads us to think that we can manipulate things as long as it moves toward our own ends. You'll notice Maybe you noticed when I read it the first time that that when Absalom kicks the conspiracy into effect, he goes to Hebron. This, by the way, is the city where David, the current king, had been anointed as king. And so in order to go there, it's going to look suspicious. So Absalom needs some sort of excuse to go to this new city. And the reason Absalom gives for doing this is he says... I made a vow to the Lord, and I need to go to worship the Lord there. Absalom wears a disguise of holiness, a mask of religious faithfulness. He is using the Lord as a ruse, as a cover to carry out his own conspiracy. How shameful. How sinful. How selfish. So when we ask the question, where does this lead? The answer to this is, it leads us to self-appointed kings. To self-appointed kings. Culturally, we have gotten really good at spotting problems. And there are lots of problems culturally and within the church we need to spot them, but we are not so good at spotting godly answers to those problems. So we end up making big, grand assumptions that I know better, that I would do better, that I could rule better, so sound the trumpet, I am king in Hebron. A self-appointed king takes what he thinks he is entitled to, even if it doesn't belong to him, because the other person is only going to mess it up anyway. A self-appointed king agrees with other people whether they're actually right or not as long as it benefits me. And a self-appointed king doesn't pause to think or to listen Or to check on the truth of what I say or post on Facebook. Because I'm on the side of justice. I'm on the side of right. I'm on the side of God. And so anyone who disagrees with me is obviously wrong. Is it any wonder why there is so much fighting on the internet, on television, and in our homes? when everyone is a self-appointed king. And you would hope that Christians would be different than this, but are we? That leads us to the third question. What is to be the Christian response here? How does a Christian respond to things like these? Because we know that the current king, David, has not been a good or godly king during this season of his life. He has not faithfully followed the Lord. He's been complacent, and he has abused his power for his own good. But the response to this is not to carry out some sort of conspiracy or mutiny or hostile takeover. So what is the response? The author of 2 Samuel here does not give us a tidy answer. In fact, he just lays out the mess for us all to see. And in this account, we see much more of the sin than we do the solution. You can point out even to a child, they get this, two wrongs don't make a right. The author does give us, however, some help, some insight into how to respond to this by what is missing in the text. There is no mention in this section at all of anyone seeking the Lord. In in fact, in this whole section, the Lord is not even mentioned except to be used as a ruse, as as Absalom's mask to hide his own intentions. The Lord is completely absent, at least as far as they know. And when I read the account of Absalom here I'm reminded of one of my favorite psalms I go to this often Um, The psalmist, this is Psalm 73 The psalmist here is struggling To know how to respond to wickedness So the psalm begins like this Psalm 73 verse 1 Truly God is good to Israel To those who are pure in heart But as for me My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they're not even in trouble as others are, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind." The psalmist here goes on to talk about these people's pride, their success, and their ease. And you have to wonder as he's talking about this, might he be tempted into sin himself as he looks at this? Might he be tempted to start some sort of conspiracy, to overthrow everything that he sees as wicked and to set it right on his own? But that's not his response. As he carries down verse 16, the psalmist says, But when... I thought how to understand this. It seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. He says here, I'm just... Exhausted looking at these Things but something about Entering into the presence of A holy God makes The psalmist here humbled And it gives him some perspective And even comfort As the psalm goes on Now I don't want to Oversimplify oversimplify things here I know situations are complex and we can't just always sit and do or say nothing. You know, if we're to follow Jesus, he moves us to action in some ways. And yet we want our first and frequent res- response as a Christian to just stop and put ourselves before the almighty God. Because we know wisdom only comes with fear of the Lord. How different, how different might the events in Absalom's life have played out? If Absalom had spent those four years, instead of kissing cheeks and winning supporters, instead of running a campaign by telling people what they want to hear by affirming their conservative or liberal ideologies and claim that everything about it is good and right if instead of rising up early every morning to stand court at the gate if Absalom rose and went into the sanctuary of God to meet with God to listen to God To bow before God in worship. How might he have been changed by God in this? How might you be changed if you did the same? There are lots of practical implications of this section. Especially as Absalom makes this political move, we can consider our current political atmosphere and our responses to it as Christians. And if right now you're getting tense going, oh no, is he going to talk about politics? It'll be okay. (laughs) We know if we're followers of the Bible... Our politics don't fit in nice, tidy boxes. But I don't even want to go there. I know that whatever I would say about politics, there would be some who would cheer, and there would be some who would boo. And because we're Presbyterians, we would do that silently, just in our minds. Uh, but, I, but I don't even, I, I don't want to go there because it, this is not because politics doesn't belong in the pulpit. The Bible speaks to all of life, so it does sometimes belong in the pulpit. And it's, I don't want to go there not because I'm afraid to speak about this or because I don't want to ruffle feathers. I trust God that the gospel will ruffle feathers on its own. But I don't want to go there because we all need to go deeper than this to change our hearts if we're going to move forward. If we want to avoid becoming conspirators in a culture of conspiracy, we must come before God. And when we do, we will see the Lord We will see the Lord who changes times and seasons. We will see the Lord who removes kings and who sets up kings. We will see the Lord who dwells in light and pierces darkness. We will see the Lord who reveals deep and hidden things. We will see the Lord who rides on the clouds and stretches out the heavens like a tent. We will see the Lord whose crowning moment on earth as king was not riding in a chariot with a parade of 50 men. It wasn't winning favor in the court of the capital. It wasn't trumpets announcing his kingship. His crowning moment was hanging alone on the cross to cleanse and transform us by his love. This is our King, and we want to take up our cross and follow him. Would you pray with me, Lord? Thank you. We give you praise not for stealing our hearts with your words, but for transforming our hearts with your love. Lord, would you reign over us? Cause us to submit ourselves to you by coming again and again and again into your sanctuary to worship and honor you. You are God alone. And we're glad for that. We give you all praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.